we're in this series on faith and on down my list as I sort of brainstormed about all the different expressions of faith that we have to have, I, I have on my list faith in tragedy, faith in the face of injustice and evil in the world. And, and I, I brought that right up to the top of the list this week because of what happened last Sunday night in, in Las Vegas. And I, I want to talk about God this morning, but in the context of 58 people murdered in 10 minutes. And, and how, do we, how do we have faith in God in the face of that, in, the, in war, in, in bloodshed, in evil, the callous evil that that would take? And I know that some of you have had that on your mind this week. Probably, I'm sure we all know about it. Some of you, though, you're not really too concerned about it. It didn't affect you personally. And I do understand that we are way beyond the threshold of our own emotional and spiritual ability to care because we have been bombarded by the media with so much disaster and tragedy and heartbreak that that we're just sort of, we end up living our own lives and keeping our head down and not caring too much about what goes on in the outside world. So I understand that maybe some of you, you haven't given it much thought, you haven't cried about it or or prayed about it, but you're going through your own tragedy in your own family or your health or your finances or with your kids or, or whatever the case may be. So as I go through this this morning, you are welcome to personalize it to your situation. I, I want you to, but I'm going to be talking about it in the context of the, the Vegas shootings from, from Sunday night. So I woke up Monday morning, I saw the headline And I suppose whenever you saw it, Sunday night or Monday morning, there was shock and then there's sorrow. And then on social media and other outlets, there's all the virtue signaling, the cliches of thoughts and prayers for Vegas and stuff comes out. And and then there's lots of hate and judgment on the murderer. and, And then there's the predictable political responses and the unpredictable ones. There's some serious hate going on toward the victims. It was shocking. People begin to talk, not just politics, but eventually there's there's all the how did this happen and law enforcement wants to figure it out, but there's inevitably when there's a school shooting or some tragedy like this, a terrorist attack, we we need to wrestle with God. Uh, We need to wrestle with how does this happen? How does somebody become so callous that they would do this and plan it for so long ahead of time. And how could God allow it? God obviously had months to take this guy out and stop this from happening. So the question then comes in your own heart or online or with friends or family or whatever, why did this happen? Why, God? Why did you allow this? How could... God, allow something this tragic and senseless to happen. And on Facebook this week, there was a man who asked that question in too publicly to his friends and whatever he said, how could a loving God allow this to happen? The answer is easy. He didn't because he doesn't exist. The atheists like to throw out tragic events and injustices, war, poverty, starvation, 
political corruption as the proof that God doesn't exist because injustice does exist and tragedy does exist. So I want to speak about faith in tragedy this morning and I want to speak to both the believer and the unbeliever. The one who believes in God but doesn't know how or why he would allow tragedy and suffering. And then there's unbelievers who are way more believing than they want to admit. You know, there's a lot of really mouthy atheists out there who get online in the comment section and you can find them everywhere. They say they don't believe in God, but they do. They just hate him and they want him to not be real because I don't go online and post hatred toward Buddha and Muhammad because they're not around. But there, but there are, there are unbelievers that genuinely hate God and hate Christianity and they're actually acting out of a lot of pain and usually some past church experience actually. But there are some who are genuinely looking for a logical answer and an answer that they can wrap their brain around and say, okay, that makes sense. And so I want to give you some of those this morning so that maybe this question was on your heart and mind this week or maybe you have a family member or a friend who needs to hear this. So I want to answer your questions. I want to equip you to answer other people's questions how do we think about a God who allows injustice, tragedy, murder, war, poverty, suffering, cancer, you know, all of the above? What, what is that? So we're going to start with this question of how would God allow this? And there are many ways to word that. How would a loving God allow this terrorist attack? Or you know, if God is real, then, then why didn't he stop it? There's ways to say it, but it all is essentially the same question. The believer is asking for faith. The unbeliever is asking for truth. And I want to start by saying that question is a totally legitimate question to ask. People all through the Bible ask God to explain himself. There are numerous great heroes of faith that demand that God answer for injustice and suffering. And let's start in Psalm 10 with David. He says, why do the wicked get away with despising God? They think God will never call us into account. But you see the trouble and grief that they cause. You take note of it and punish them. The helpless put their trust in you. You defend the orphans. Break the arms of these wicked people. Go after them until the last one is destroyed. David is wrestling with God over some situation that he has observed where somebody has been evil and they've gotten away with it and it looks like God didn't stop it. And he asks God, why is this happening? And he says, get him, God, come on. You know, the entire book of Job is Job demanding that God answer, why did you allow this tragedy in my life? All of his kids died in five minutes. I mean, that's, that's a big, big tragedy. He lost absolutely everything. And he wants God to answer. The entire book of Habakkuk, asking questions of God. God, I see that wicked people are succeeding and the righteous people are suffering. That doesn't match what your word says. Explain that. So I'm telling you, when we have these questions, why did God allow this? Why didn't God stop this? How did God create this world that's so broken and evil and painful? Those sorts of questions are totally legitimate to ask to God. Jeremiah 12, the prophet Jeremiah uh, asks God, explain yourself. Why do the wicked succeed? Why am I suffering? I'm delivering your word and I'm the one paying for it, God. I want to read to you Psalm 73. It's not going to be on the screen. This is the New Living Translation. Asaph is the author. He says, 
I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them succeed despite their wickedness. They seem to live in such painless lives. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like anyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and they clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat people have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. So the people are dismayed and confused. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even see what's happening? Look at all these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long and every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but that is a difficult task. When I went into your sanctuary, O God, I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the hill to destruction. In an instant, they will be destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like an animal to you. But yet, I still belong to you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Asaph's got some pretty serious charges against God. He sees that there are people living in corruption and sin, and they're living pretty well. And he said, I made myself pure, and it hurts. And he said, I almost lost it. My faith almost died. I almost quit until I went into your house, God, and I worshiped you, and I saw who you were, and I believe your word, and I believe your promises, and I see that the people who don't repent, the people who bring evil, will be punished, and the righteous will be blessed and protected. So all of that just to say, when we have these questions, even complaints against God in our heart, it's totally legit to take that to God and tell Him. You don't have to bury that down in the bottom of your heart and act like you don't feel it. God, why did you let that person die that I loved? How did you, how did you let this failure happen? How did you let that person sin against me and hurt me so bad? How do you stand by and let 58 people die in 10 minutes? Those sorts of questions are perfectly legitimate. I'm here to give you three answers this morning. I don't claim that they are the, the only three answers. They're just three that I thought of this week. So again, I don't claim that it's complete. I just have some things for you to think about. Those of you who've been around have heard some of this before, but I promise you there's new stuff here for you to think on and meditate and pray about. So we'll start with the question, how could God allow tragedy? How could he allow this senseless, callous, just almost unimaginable atrocity to happen? We can word that other ways. If a God is good, why does evil exist? If God loves us, why didn't he stop this? 
lots of different ways to word the question. This is just how I'm going to start with it. If God is real and he's good, how could he allow this? C.S. Lewis wrote, It is essential to examine the assumptions within a question. When we ask a question, we have to understand the question is not the beginning point. We have some assumptions behind that question. This question assumes, using the word allow, assumes that God could have stopped it. This question assumes that God has power. This question assumes that God is against what happened in Vegas or in your life. So there are some assumptions, and let's look at a few of them. One assumption in that question is that God is all-powerful. The word is omnipotent. One assumption is that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. God is all-knowing. The word is omniscient. And that God is perfectly good and loving. All four of those presuppositions are biblical Christian truth. They're true. Every one of those is true. God is all-powerful. He does know everything. He is everywhere. He is perfect good. And he is perfect love. There are some other assumptions in there in that question, that a loving God would want to have stopped this terrorist attack, that God could have stopped it. Another assumption is that nothing that happens in the universe without God's permission, so God must have given his permission for this to happen. That's all assumed in that question. Why did God allow this? Or how could have God allowed it? Or if God is good, why does it happen? So yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, he knows everything. Yes, he is everywhere. He is perfect love and he is perfect good and he has all power. But nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in any Christian doctrine, anywhere in 2,000 years of history can anybody scripturally claim that God says that he is in control. God has all power, but he is not in control. Not in a forceful way to take charge and make his will happen. We have a really stupid platitude in the church that, well, everything happens for a reason. Or, well, it must just be God's will. That's not in the Bible. It isn't scriptural. We say these cliches to comfort ourselves, but the truth is that God's will doesn't automatically happen. And if we claim that it does, then we're blaming every sin and tragedy on God. And we're saying that all the wars and starvation and divorces and child abuse and murder and rape that happens is God's, somehow God's mysterious plan. That's not scriptural. It isn't Christian doctrine. It's just mindless platitudes that people have spouted for so many generations that we think it's there. The easiest way to prove that God is not in control in your personal life is that however long ago, maybe it was yesterday or maybe it was 40 years ago, you gave your heart and light to Jesus and you said, I will obey you, God, I will live for you. And then you didn't. And he didn't stop you. Hello? None of us would be so arrogant as to claim, I have obeyed perfectly since the day I got baptized. So obviously God is not in forceful control of any of our lives. He waits for us to choose obedience. Yeah. He doesn't take control and possess people and make them do what is right. And even amongst his own children, he doesn't do that. How much more so the people who have not yet voluntarily surrendered to him out in the world. 
He is not going to possess them with the Holy Spirit. Demons possess people and make them do evil things. God does not. God is into freedom and love. And I'll prove it to you as we go. God is not in control because we have not perfectly obeyed and he hasn't possessed us. And somebody would say, okay, yeah, Mitch, but I haven't murdered 58 people and shot 500 others. Yeah, well, right now I'm not grading big and little sins. I'm just saying all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even after we promised we would live right. So actually, God is not in control. He has all power. But he is not in control. And I'm going to give you an example of how that works in just a minute. But actually the Bible says there are quite a few things God can't do. Scripture says he cannot fail. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot be unrighteous or unjust. He cannot be tempted. He cannot tempt anyone to sin. It says he cannot be pleased by any of us in our flesh. He cannot be measured. He cannot be contained. Another thing God can't do is force obedience because forced obedience is not obedience. It is compliance. He cannot force obedience. So we come to the biblical concept of free will. It's true that God is all powerful and he is all capable, but that's not the same thing as having authority to use that power. Authority is Final responsibility to make decisions in law. Power and strength are being able to enforce what I say, what I want done, making other people do what I choose. So let me give you an example of the difference between power and authority. That God has power. He does not have authority in everyone's life unless we give it to him. Here we go. Here's my example. Sarah and I constantly get compliments on our kids how well-behaved they are, and so on. It happens regularly, a couple times even since school started. Teachers have gone out of their way to tell Sarah, your kids are seriously unique. And the teachers are not necessarily Christians, they don't know, but um, like you're something really special about your kids. And, and I want you to tell you, it's not something special. It isn't genetics, and it isn't some magic mystery that somehow we just, we just have great kids. This is why we have great kids. The humble spanking spoon. When they were in preschool, they saw this nearly every day. And some of the girls saw it several times a day. Will was pretty compliant most of the time. Some of those girls, they could fight pretty hard. This is an excellent attitude adjuster. It is amazing the uh, level of peace and harmony and joy you can have in your home five minutes after this is employed. The book of Proverbs says that this is the way to raise your kids, and we did it, and it worked. A few swats on the attitude, and uh, that attitude was adjusted. All right, so now let's, let's talk about your kids. You're, let's bring in all the kids out of the nursery and the little lion's classroom. Bring them up here with me. And I'm here with your kids and you're not here. And I have my spoon. And, and your kid does something that I would spank my kid for. I see it all the time. I have never spanked your kid. Even though, compared to a classroom of preschoolers, I am all-powerful. 
not a single one of them could stand up to me, and I can do whatever I want to them. I have zero authority to do so. Do you see the difference between power and authority? With my kids, I have power and authority. Compared to your kids in size, I am all-powerful, but I have no authority to spank your kid. In fact, it is creeping you out that I'm even using this as an example. (laughs) And I mean that because I want to show you how gross it is to try to control someone when you don't have authority to do it. How gross it would be for God to possess us if we don't voluntarily surrender to Him. Do you see it? Parents, employ it. (laughs) Parents of young kids, I would love to talk to you about the, the spoon. So, so, I'm a big strong guy. I could spank your kids if I want to and they could not stop me and most of you could not stop me. I have power. I have no authority. So I've never done it and I'm not going to. And it's creepy to even think about it. And so it is with God. It is grossly terrible to try to control somebody else when I don't have authority to do so. God has all power, but since he is gentle and merciful, he does not use force to control people. He waits to be given authority in our hearts. Revelation shows Jesus outside the door of our heart, knocking, waiting for us to open it up. Genesis and Psalms say that when he created us, God gave humanity authority on the earth. And Romans 1 says he gave us over to the consequences of our sin. So it is us bringing sin and injustice and death and pain into the planet, not him. And he cannot just rise up in force and stop it. He does not have that authority right now. Another completely unrelated example of what the difference between authority and power that I'll give you that'll make sense to some of you who might have been in the military is a ship captain. Out there in the ship, the admiral or the captain, whoever's in charge, that, that captain has authority and power. That guy is in command. He runs the ship. He gives an order. Everybody does it. He has authority. And he also has power because if a sailor says, no, thank you, he's going to the brig. Okay, he's got power and authority. But if there's a mutiny, the captain is still in in charge but ain't nobody listening we're not going to enforce your authority anymore sir we have lost trust we are mutinying is that even a word i don't know (laughs) right and pirates if they attack the ship with rpgs and speedboats and machine guns they have no authority but they got a lot of power and they are using it without authority that's why it's theft right difference between power and authority god has all power no question but he does not take forceful authority in our lives to stop us from disobeying him so we have to change the question from how could god allow this or why did god allow this or if there's a loving god then tragedies wouldn't happen we have to change the question to why couldn't god stop this one let that sink in there why couldn't god stop this because we know it's not his will and we know he has all power Why couldn't he stop it? Well, the answer is that God is love. And love is the highest ethic in the universe. Love is the greatest moral law. In fact, Jesus said love is the only moral law. Love God and love your neighbor. All laws are bound up in that. They're just 
all the other rules of the Old Testament or all morality, all Christianity is bound up in love, your, love God and love your neighbor. So it's immoral for God not to love and it is immoral for us not to love. All morality, all ethic is love. And for love to exist, it has to be freely given and freely received. And I'm going to use again a very powerful and shocking example to you. I apologize if this upsets you, but, but I, I mean to do it. To show you how absolutely necessary freedom is to love. That it's not love if we're not free. The best example I can come up with is sexual love. For sex to be love in God's design, it had the desire, the attraction, and the permission, and the covenant have to be two ways. And it has to be freely given and freely received. If only one person in the couple carries that desire or permission, if the receiver is not free to say no, it's rape. Love must be equally two ways and completely free to say yes and completely free to say no or it isn't love. I see a bunch of you shaking your head. You understand what I mean. Love, sexual love, can never be taken or coerced or manipulated or forced or controlled. Am I right? So love has to be freely willing and freely given and freely received by both parties or it isn't love. It's something else. Codependency or psychosis or lust or something. So again, we see the difference between power and authority. Most men have the power to do whatever they want. We have zero authority to do that at all. Can I get an amen? amen. God has the power to do anything he wants. He will not force himself on anyone's soul. Anything else is not love. Love is complete freedom from forceful control. It is to give the person that you love complete personal autonomy. That's love. Free will is really free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Christ set us free so we could be free. Period. Not so that we can be bound up in a bunch of laws. But then we choose to obey Him. It's a two-way contract of complete personal autonomy, complete choice on both people's parts. God and us. And if I'm totally free, then I'm totally responsible for what I choose. Because if I make bad choices and somebody else pays for them, then it wasn't free. Somebody else paid for it. Hello? Parents of teens and adult kids that are making really, really stupid, godless choices, do not pay their price for them. I understand. We're on, right on the cusp of our children moving out of our home and giving freedom to your kids. 
I can see has got to be the most scary and painful thing, especially if they're not obeying God. But real love sets them completely free. You make your own choices and you pay every cost of every choice. I am not paying any of it. Let them eat the fruit of their own choices. That's love. That's freedom. That's God. Since we must be free to choose God's love, and we must be free to receive God's love, and we must be free to give our love to God and other people, then in that freedom we're also free to reject God's love and to disobey. If I'm not free to disobey, then I'm not free. Free choices have to have consequences, and sometimes with people like the guy in Las Vegas, it results in terrible tragedy. So I was reading the comment section in some article I was reading this week, and a woman's comment was, why wasn't the FBI watching this guy? Oh, no. As far as I know, he had no criminal record, like a traffic stop or two. I realize his dad was a serious felon, but as far as I understand, he didn't have any, he didn't have any reason for the FBI to watching, be watching him. My response, my first thought is, we do not want an FBI that is capable or even trying to watch all of us. Right. And, but apparently we do, because WikiLeaks informed us a year or two ago of you know, that were all our texts and emails and stuff's being recorded on some computer somewhere, and there's a lot of people, rightfully so, really freaking out about that. Uh, there's no search warrant, there's no right, there's no criminal intent, and they're collecting all this data and holding it all on us. We do not want a government that can prevent every crime. Please hear me. We do not want to live under a government that can prevent every tragedy. Because the ones that do are North Korea and ISIS. Think Nazis and communists and gulags and monkey trials and public executions and concentration camps. So, we do not want a God that stops every sin. We do not want God to stop tragedy. I know that's a really big bomb. Just let this sink in as I explain what I mean. We do not want a God who stops every sin. Because if we have a God who prevents the bad guys from being bad then that's all of us. None of us would be free. There would be complete control. And there would never be a chance of forgiveness or redemption, only iron-handed destruction after our first sin. Well, I don't want God to stop me. I just want God to stop the other guy. No, God's love and forgiveness requires freedom. Freedom to sin. For God to be loving and just, He has to give us complete freedom to sin. Freedom to fail, because that is freedom to repent and to learn and to try again and again and again. Freedom and forgiveness on God's part require that He let us sin over and over it again. 
Because for us who are his people, that's us, hopefully, failing forward toward righteousness. And the scripture says God's patience with the unsaved is that he hopes they will get saved. He does not want anyone in hell. So praise God that he does not stop sin. Because if he did, you would be dead. God has the power to stop any sin or any sinner. He could relieve all suffering and right every injustice at the snap of a finger. But thank God he does not. Because he would have killed you before you had that affair. He would have killed you before you got drunk the first time. He would have killed you before you cheated on your high school test. He would have killed you before you lied when you were four years old. And your parents would have died before you were born and their parents would have died. Exactly in that snap of the finger, no one would exist. And if that tweaks your pride, I'm sorry. You're thinking, well, I didn't murder 58 people. Uh Uh-huh. But you brought destruction on your family or your body or sinned against God in some way. And Jesus makes it very clear, other people's sin is a speck in their eye and my sin is a log in my eye. I cannot say the shooter, sorry, I hate that word, the murderer in Vegas, I cannot say he's more evil than me. That sin is in my heart also. If I give in to hatred, I can go there. I cannot say there is any sin I would never do. So if God stopped sin, we would all cease to exist because he would have to stop it before we did it. And someone would say, well, God doesn't have to kill me. He just needs to stop me from sinning. I don't even know how to imagine what your day would be like. I don't even know if I can imagine myself laying in bed. Because thoughts, some of my thoughts can be sinful. I couldn't even think. Ah, how can we wrap our mind around a sinless existence in this earth? We can't, because it can't exist. And God can't stop it. So you would say, well, I just want God to stop me from sinning, and, and he doesn't have to take me out. But yeah, that's like me spanking your kids. It's like God taking authority in your heart where you have been given freedom and autonomy. Even if God took authority to do that, it really would be as creepy as me spanking your kid. And even if God took over and we did his will by default, and if it really was true that, well, it must be the mysterious will of God and these things happen for a reason, and even if that, those platitudes were true he would only be creating conformity and compliance by brute force. It's not love or obedience. He would end up with Holy Spirit-possessed robots incapable of love or thought or obedience or worship. There would be no freedom, so there is no love, but he cannot deny himself. He is love. So he extends freedom. So somebody would say, okay, well, yeah, I don't want God to kill me and I don't need God to control me, but he can warn me when I'm about to do something wrong. (gasps) He has! You get your wish. He did warn you right before you're about to sin. Here it is. It's an open book test. The only way for God to be perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time 
is to define love for us, which he has done. Remember, love is all definition of right and wrong is defined in love. He has defined love for us. He has extended to us complete moral freedom to make our own decisions about whether we're going to obey that love or not. And for him to be perfectly loving and just at the same time, he must forgive everyone who asks and he must kill everyone who rebels. That's perfect love and perfect justice at the same time. All of those things must happen. And guess what? That is the gospel. That is this book. So my number one answer to the question is, how could God allow tragedy and death and destruction and murder and things in our lives? I don't say it's the number one answer, but it's just the number one on my list. The answer is that God loves us enough to give us complete personal freedom to choose him or not. And some people don't. And it isn't God doing the evil, it is them choosing to disobey God. And that freedom is perfect love even though it creates a pretty difficult existence in this world, in this life. A second answer I have for you, these are not necessarily related or in any order, but a second answer I have for the question of, if God is loving and good and perfect, why did he create a world with so much evil in it? The second answer I have for you is, God did not create evil, because evil does not exist. There is no substance to evil. God did not make anything evil. Nothing evil exists. Let me explain it in nature and science for you and you'll see it in the spirit. Darkness does not exist. Darkness is not a thing. It is the absence of light, which is a thing. Light is made of photons and energy. God created light. Darkness is the absence of light. Yes? Silence is not a thing. There is no substance to silence. It is the absence of sound, which God created. Sound is energy waves, and God made that. God did not make silence. Silence is the absence of something that God made. There is no such thing as a vacuum, and I don't mean your carpet vacuum. I mean a vacuum like outer space. A vacuum is nothing. A vacuum is the absence of matter, which God did create. But the vacuum is where the stuff that God made is gone. There's a vacuum. Cold does not exist, even though Sarah would probably argue with me. It's cold all the time. Cold does not exist. Heat exists. Heat is energy in matter. Cold is the absence of energy in matter. Cold is not a thing. There is no substance to it. God did not create cold. God created heat. Because heat is a substance. It is a thing. It is an energy. Not a substance. It's an energy. Are you with me? So the things that God creates are good. And the things that we normally see as evil or negative or bad... They aren't things God made. It's the absence of things God made. God did not create hunger. Hunger is the absence of food, which God made. God made food. Not having enough of it in a famine or a drought is that something is wrong with what God made. God did not create famine. Poverty is not a substance. Money is. People who live in poverty don't have enough of the good thing God made, which is money. Right? Sickness is where something goes wrong with our body when God obviously designed all of our organs and our systems to work right, to purify ourselves, and to renew ourselves and be strong and healthy. When something goes wrong with that, then sickness exists. I know there are a few things like viruses and cancer cells and and all that, but mostly sickness is, is something is not working right. 
or something that isn't supposed to be in here got in here. Something didn't reproduce correctly. Something isn't functioning correctly. God created our bodies to work healthy and right. Sickness is not a thing. It's the absence of health. It's something isn't working right. So death is not a thing. It's the absence of life that God created. And sin is not a thing. There's no substance to sin. It's the absence of obedience. The Old Testament word in Hebrew for sin is shata, and shata means to miss the target, as in shooting an arrow. The target is the thing. And if I sin, so the target is purity, or the target is generosity, or the target is love, or the target is forgiveness. If I miss the target, I sin. What did I hit? Nothing. Sin is nothing. It's anything else other than the thing, which is the the target I'm supposed to hit, which is righteousness. Sin is not a thing that God created. It is us not doing the thing that God created, which is forgiveness, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, graciousness, all of that. There is no substance to evil. It's just the absence of the good things that God created. It's the absence of obedience to God. So God wants us to be filled with him because anything short of that is malfunction, dysfunction, destruction. God created peace and balance and order and righteousness and health and life. And we're the ones that messed that up. So Tom Gilson wrote this week that shooting tells us more about ourselves than it does about God. Again, the question was, if God is loving and good and perfect, why did he create all this evil in the world? He did not create the evil because evil is nothing. There is no creation or substance to evil. It is us not doing the thing we're supposed to do that God did create. A third answer that I have to the question is how could God allow this? A third answer is uh, don't get sucked into that question because Jesus is our savior from all of this, not the one to blame. Satan likes to twist our perspective from the salvation of God from all of the troubles of the world and all the evils to blaming God for the troubles of the world. And Ravi Zacharias, who's a really famous apologist minister, who's born in India and then now lives in America. He's a genius. He's educated at Cambridge. And if you know him, you know who he is. He, he said, I was born in the East, meaning the Eastern cultures in India. I was born in the East and now I live in the West. He said, I don't ever remember being asked this question in the East. Like, why would God do this or allow this? He said, I don't ever remember being asked that question in the East, only in the West. Because he said in the East, people would just say, well, it's just bad luck. They're not all in emotional turmoil about how could bad things have happened to these good people at that concert and they didn't deserve what happened to them because in the Eastern cultures, anything bad that happens to you, you did deserve. He said, he said the, uh, Eastern cultures would say it was just bad luck, so we're going to blame chance. He said, Muslims would say it is the will of Allah. He said, so they, they say God did it, but not in a blaming way like, oh, Allah is evil. It's like, hey, we just have to accept it. It's just God. The Hindus would say it's karma. You're just paying for your own sins. And actually, it's something to be desired to suffer, to be purified. And, and then I would add, in the, even in the Old Testament law, it would be easy to say of the tragedy on Sunday night of the 58 people who died and the 500 who were shot 
it would be easy to say, even looking at the Old Testament law, well, it's just the judgment of God. And we're going to blame the victim and God. But in Luke 13, Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that we know the people who died and got shot in Vegas are not being punished for their sins. Let's look here. Luke 13, 1 to 5. Some people told him about the Galileans who Pilate murdered while they worshipped. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered such things, I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Pharisees wanted to judge people when tragedy happens. They wanted to judge them. Well, that must be God's judgment on their life. And obviously it's not happening to me, so God's cool with me. Jesus says, no, you're all bound for the same hell unless you turn to me. Essentially, he's saying, it doesn't matter the way we go out. We're all bound for the same place unless we turn to him. He says, don't judge these people for what they endured, what they suffered, or what happened to them. It isn't blame the victim. And it isn't blame God. The actual New Testament Christian answer to the question, so the Muslims would say it's just the will of God. Hindus would say it's karma, you're paying for your sins. The Old Testament would say it's the judgment of God, you're paying for your sins. The New Testament answer is obviously it is sin. That's why it happened. And we are all the murderer and we are all the victims. Every single one of us is in the same boat before Jesus Christ. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no mystery about why this guy had murder in his heart. Jesus said, if you even speak anger to someone, you have the seed of murder in your heart. Well, I've done that. I cannot say in any truth at all that I wouldn't do that. If I gave in to hatred and unforgiveness long enough, but for the grace of God, there go I. The answer to the question is, this is not God's will. It's sin. And we all need a Savior. We all need forgiven. And Jesus is our Savior from all of this, not the one to blame. We can see how automatically good Jesus is. He's not vindictive or arbitrary. We can see how automatically good he is in the story where the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years presses up to him in a crowd, was against the law for her to touch him because she was unclean, but she touched him anyway and instantly she's healed. And he turns around and says, who touched me? Now the apostles say, Jesus, everybody's touched you. You're in a, this mob of people are pressing in to get to him, and, but somebody touched him in faith. There's the difference. Hello? Everybody's touching him, but somebody touched him in faith and she got healed instantly, but Jesus didn't know who it was. So allow me to use this word, he accidentally healed her. He unintentionally healed her. Why? Because she touched him and what was in him came out. It's just full of life and health and strength and blessing and goodness. And he doesn't have, it wasn't like he saw her and had compassion and felt sorry for her, so he healed her. It's just who he is. And it happened unintentionally. 
Jesus is not the one to blame for the problems of our health or the world or the justice system or the corruption of the government, and he is our savior from all of these things. The opposite direction is also demonstrated in the story of the demons and the pigs. The, Jesus cast the demons out of the man, and the demons say, please, Jesus, don't send us back to the pit. And he says, all right. They say, please, send us into those pigs. Jesus says, all right, go live in the pigs. The demons go into the pigs. Immediately, they run off a cliff and kill themselves. The demons wanted to live in the pigs, but by their very nature, the pigs died when the demons came into them. They accidentally killed the pigs. They unintentionally killed the pigs. Quote, unquote. Okay, you see, my point is they, they are just full of death and destruction and evil and Jesus is just full of goodness and life and health and salvation and deliverance. And it doesn't even have to be intentional. It's just who he is. It's just who he is. He is our savior. He's not the one to blame. He's the one who saves us from all of this. So there's my three answers to the question, how would God allow something like this if he's good? One is, He gives us free will, and we are totally free to choose. And we're totally responsible for what we create by those choices. The second answer is, he didn't create anything evil because there isn't any substance or existence to anything evil. It's just our own disobedience to what he did create. And the third answer is, Jesus is our Savior from all of these things, not the one who creates them and who is the cause of them. Having said all of that, those are scriptural answers, they're logical answers, easy to wrap our minds around, but I understand that all of us in this room have more than a mind, we have a heart too. And your heart needs an answer also, because you can understand God, you can understand scripture, but there's still a lot of pain that has happened in your marriage or your divorce or your kids or your work or whatever happened. So I, I just want to say this, that I understand that preachers and apologists, we can th- throw out Bible verses and have a watertight case for these things. But I do understand that in the end, we all do just have to choose to believe that God is good. It is faith. I, I do understand that. And it is for me too. I do believe everything I just told you, but I understand that it doesn't answer every question. I I do understand that. At the end of the day, we have to have faith that God is good, that he is righteous, that he is just, and he is loving, even when horrendously terrible stuff happens. Psalm 1830 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. God is perfect. His word has been proven true. My life does not match up to that. The space in between is called faith. And every Bible character had to wrestle with that. And every Christian for 2,000 years has had to wrestle with that. And faith is a choice to be assured of what we have not yet seen. What have I not yet seen? That God has made everything right yet. I haven't seen that. There's a lot of really beautiful promises in that book. I haven't seen them come true. The space in between is faith. 
I choose to believe the promise. I choose to believe the scripture. I choose to believe the word. I choose to believe that God is good even when really terrible stuff happens, even when really hard stuff happens, even when the promises and the prophecies and the scriptures haven't happened yet. I understand that it truly takes faith. Faith is being assured of what we haven't seen yet. We don't understand why God does what he does. We don't understand why God doesn't do what he doesn't do. If we did understand him, that would mean he was smaller than our brain. I don't want a God that's smaller than my brain. I want a God I can't understand. I have to have a God I can't understand. Because that, by definition, means he's bigger than me. You think you have God figured out? You're deluded. Psalm 119, David says this, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I pray, let your merciful kindness be my comfort according to your word. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. I don't know what David was afflicted with, but in this moment he writes, God, regardless of what has come upon me, regardless of what has happened, I choose to believe that your judgments are right. What's his judgments? What God has decided to do and what God has decided to not do. What God has decided to stop and what God has not decided to stop from happening. That's faith. God, I give it to you. Whatever is afflicting me, I know you are faithful. Your word is true. Everything you do is good and right. I choose to believe it. And what happens? Comfort. Tender mercies. It isn't us pacifying ourselves or deluding ourselves with some blind faith. We understand that there are questions that are not answered. But there is faith. And in faith there is peace. I choose to believe that God's word is true. I choose to believe he is good and just and loving. I choose to believe there is a day coming when everything will be set right. Every injustice will be satisfied and every question will be answered. From Psalm 37. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. Like grass, they will soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they will wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your, everything you do to the Lord. Trust in him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn. The justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord. Wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who succeed. Don't fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It will only lead you to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance, but the Lord just laughs. He sees that their day of judgment is coming. The wicked draw their swords and string their bows to kill the poor and the oppressed, to slaughter those who do right. But their swords will stab their own hearts. Their bows will be broken. It is better to be godly and have a little than to be evil and rich. For the strength of the wicked will be shattered, but the Lord takes care of the godly. Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent, and he will receive an inheritance that lasts forever. They will not be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine, they will have more than enough. But the wicked will die. The Lord's enemies are like flowers in a field. They will disappear like smoke. 
The wicked borrow and never repay. The godly are generous givers. The Lord blesses those who possess the land. Those he curses will die. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young and now I am old, yet never have I seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. The godly always give generous loans to others and their children are a blessing. Turn from evil and do good and you will live in the land forever. For the Lord loves justice and he will never abandon the godly. He will keep them safe forever. The children of the wicked will die. The godly will possess the land and will live there forever. The godly offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. They have made God's law their own and they will never slip from his path. But the wicked wait in ambush for the godly, looking for any excuse to kill them. But the Lord will not let the wicked succeed or let the godly be condemned when he is put on trial. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily along his path. He will honor you by giving you the land and you will see the wicked destroyed. I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil, but when I looked again, they were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. Look at those who are honest and good. There is a wonderful future awaits for those who love peace. But the rebellious will be destroyed. They have no future. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in Him. Psalm 37. Thank you, Father, for your promise that there is a day of justice, that there is righteousness, there is a fulfillment of every promise. There is an answer to every question. Well, we believe that your word is true. Even now, in the situations where we have not seen it come to pass yet, we choose faith this morning. Even in the midst of pain, of being lied about or sinned against, being falsely accused, living under situations that are contrary to your will, We choose to believe your word, that you are faithful and good, that you love us, that you are our healer and deliverer and savior, not the author of our troubles. Or forgive us for anger with you or anyone else when things didn't go the way we thought they should go. Lord, right now we release accusation against you or anyone else. We forgive. We speak love and forgiveness and we receive your mercy and your comfort and your peace. Lord, we do have some honest questions. We do have some needs. We do have some situations that we need you to make right. We need your deliverance and your healing and your salvation. We need your forgiveness. We believe that you hear our prayer that you are good, that you are kind, that you are perfect love, that you are perfectly just. Everything you do is right and everything you don't do is right. And one day everything will be made right. Every question will be answered. And you will be proven righteous and true in everything that you did and everything that you didn't do. We choose to follow you in faith. Thank you for your word that gives us direction. But even with unanswered questions, Lord, we will trust you. We will obey you. We will follow you. 